We read these uh, words because uh, in the sermon we will be looking at doing righteousness, the doing of good works. And so we read these words from Isaiah 64 verse 5. Thou dost meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers thee in thy ways. Behold, thou wast angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. And shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. And there is no one who calls on thy name, who arouses himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hidden thy face from us and hast delivered us into the power of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay and thou our potter. And all of us are the work of thy hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are thy people. Would you then turn please to Galatians chapter 5. And I'll read verses 13 to 25. The text for the sermon is verses 16 to 18. And then I'll follow that by reading from the Westminster Uh, Chapter 16, Articles 4 and 5. 1 Galatians 5 from verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Now our text through to verse 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, And the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus 
have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And then inside your bulletin, you'll find a copy of the Westminster Confession, chapter 16, and articles 4 and 5. In the chapter on good works. Article 4. They who, in their obedience, attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life, are so far from being able to supererogate and to do more than God requires, as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. And then Article 5. We cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come, and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins, but when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and our unprofitable servants. And because, as they are good, they proceed from his spirit, and as they are wrought by us, they are defiled, are mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we claim to be servants of the Most High. Will you help us to act more like it? Father, will you strengthen our motivation and our desire to serve you And will you strengthen us again in this by the preaching of your word this afternoon and by the work of your Holy Spirit within us as we hear that word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, you uh, try to be a good person, and especially as a Christian. You try to do good works as often as possible, and you try to avoid sinful thoughts and words and deeds. But it's so frustrating and so disappointing and so discouraging that even when you make your best and your most decisive resolutions, even when you're dealing perhaps with just one single besetting sin, even as a Christian, you find yourself falling back again and again into your old bad habits. Why can't you do better? What holds you back? Well, the father of the free will era, Pelagius, he said that we don't actually have a sinful nature. We're not born with a sinful nature, one enslaved to sin. We've got a lot of bad examples around us, and Adam was a bad example. But we should be able, he argued, and we are able in theory, to be perfectly good. But of course, no one except the Lord Jesus Christ has ever succeeded in demonstrating his theory to be right 
And that's not surprising that the Lord Jesus is the only one who's ever been able to achieve that because his theory is not right. And we see why under two headings. First of all, we will look at what it means to be walking by the flesh and secondly, walking by the spirit. Walking by the flesh where we get some idea of what it is that holds us back and walking by the spirit where we get some idea of Uh, how we can uh, move forward and perhaps do better. In the first place, when the text talks about walking by the flesh, it uses the word flesh here. The word flesh is used different ways in the New Testament. And uh, in this particular case, it's referring to the part of us that is hostile to God, hostile to the Son of God, hostile to the Word of God, and hostile to the Spirit of God. This is talking about our old fallen nature, which still clings to us, even though we are Christians. Now, of course, in the case of the unbeliever, there is only this one fleshly nature. So a non-Christian can only do things that are hostile to God. Sometimes he does that by way of direct disobedience to God's commandments. Sometimes he does it by doing the right thing doing things that are good in themselves, but he doesn't do it out of love and dedication to the Lord. And so that too is another variation on the theme of walking according to the flesh. In the case of the Christian, though, we have a new nature that has been created by God uh, through the work of his word and his Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit creates a a new principle of spiritual life that changes who we are at the core of our being. He does that for all at some point. He does that for all of those for whom the Lord Jesus died, for all of those who are elect. And because of that, there is created in us a desire to obey God and to serve God according to his word and as moved by his Holy Spirit. But it is this very same truth, or two truths really, the truth of the old nature that still clings to us, and that the Holy Spirit creates in us that new life, it is uh, the combination of those two things that signals a war. And that war is expressed in verse 17 here. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. The unbeliever may have a struggle sometimes with his conscience because uh, deep down every unbeliever has some idea of what is right and wrong. But in the case of the Christian, it's more than a struggle with our conscience. In the case of the Christian, there is this life that is created in us and guided within us and led even by the Holy Spirit struggling against that part of us that wants to side with the devil. And we know about that struggle well, uh, perhaps most familiar with it from Romans chapter 7. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here has a lot of similarity to what he says, though in briefer form, with what he argues in Romans 7. Here also the Apostle Paul says that the result is, the result of this struggle is that we may not do the things that we please. In other words, Uh, Because we have this principle of life uh, created in us, 
at the core of our being, we really, really want to do that which is pleasing in God's sight. That is our desire. That is what we would be pleased to do, to do those good things that are pleasing in his sight. That's what our new nature wants to do. And that's similar to what the Apostle says in Romans 7 verse 19. The good that I want, the good that I desire to do, that pleases me. But he adds, that good I do not do. Evil is present in me, he says in Romans 7.21, the one who wants to do good. And this really explains what Pelagius couldn't understand. Why everyone just keeps on following those bad examples around them. Instead of getting their act together, being perfect. It also explains why no matter how hard you try as a Christian to be faithful, there remain within you elements of unfaithfulness. And it also explains why if you would take the most godly Christian you know, and you would observe their lives very, very carefully. You might have to move into their home to do that. Not sure if they would be keen about that, but that would be one way you could do it. Move into their home so you get to see them at very close quarters every day. Or perhaps you could do the, the big brother thing and set up some cameras and spy on them. And you'd very soon realise how much less Christian they are in the things that they think and say and do than you originally had thought and the same would be true of you if you were that person that somebody else looked up to in that way and, thinks, and thought to themselves when they look at you, that's the most Christ-like person I know. Of course, it's not only Pelagius who is knocked on the head by these home truths. This also has uh, something to say against some of the historic teaching of Roman Catholicism especially in Westminster 16, in these two articles 4 and 5. This is no doubt in view, where the comment is made that some have believed that saints could do works of supererogation. Supererogation, super means above, and the rest of it has to do with what is asked. So supererogation works that go above and beyond what is asked of you. In this case, works that go above and beyond what God requires of you. Things that go beyond the call of duty, uh, creating, in the Roman Catholic view historically, an excess of merit, spare merit left over in your life because you do so much more than what God ever asked of you in his law. Like a child who's asked to clean up his room, Mum and Dad go out for a while when they come back. Let's say a teenager who's asked to clean up his room. Mum and Dad go out for a while. They come back and they find the whole house has been done. We weren't asked to do it, but the kids did it anyway. A work of super arrogation, going beyond the call of duty. And, like a person with spare cash, Roman Catholics used to argue that that excess merit could be banked. It could be put in a kind of treasury, the treasury of merit. Alongside Christ's payment for our sins, which also went into that treasury. And from there, like a bank, it could be drawn on. That excess merit could be drawn on. It could be drawn on in Roman Catholic teaching by the church, especially through the Pope. It could even be purchased 
as an indulgence in the Middle Ages to shorten the time that sinners spent in purgatory, either for yourself or for others, other loved ones. Though I hasten to add that this whole teaching on uh, the treasury of merit and on uh, purgatory and such things, uh, that has been watered down a lot and changed quite a bit in current Roman Catholic theology, though there's still some remnant of that thinking that's left. Against this, Article 4, 4 tells us that even those who reach the greatest height of obedience that's possible in this life, so think again of that person you regard as the most godly Christian you know, or you can think historically of some of the great Christians of the past, if you wish. And we're told here that even those who reach the greatest height are far from being able to supererogate, to do more than what God asks or requires. On the contrary, we are told, even the best they do falls short of much which they are in duty bound to do. In other words, they don't even do a very good job of keeping to what is their bare duty, let alone going above and beyond the call of duty. There is no excess of merit. There is no treasury in which to deposit said excess of merit. And there is no ability of the church to draw upon that, least of all to lessen the time in a fictional and non-existent place called purgatory. There is only the infinite value of the Lord Jesus Christ's work and his infinite merit that brings a full salvation to those who believe in him such that they do not spend any time, not in purgatory, we don't even need to talk about that fictional thing, but spend any time in hell. A full salvation that requires no lending or borrowing from anybody else's supposed merit other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Westminster in 16, chapter 16, article 5 goes on to expand on this and to spell out the reasons why even our best works cannot merit the forgiveness of sins, let alone having anything left over to help out others. And we could perhaps summarise this under uh, four different categories. First, if you could somehow time travel and jump ahead to what you're doing, what you will be doing in glory in the next life in God's presence, when all sin has been taken away from you, and if you could see the works that you will be doing there and compare them with what you are doing now, you would see in the contrast of that how poor our efforts are in this present life. We are like a child you know how little children do drawings and they, they proudly come and they show their, their cute little drawings to you and they've got turtle sticks for legs and some arms like that with fingers splayed out and then a gigantic head, usually with very big nose, from the perspective of a child who's down here looking up at these tall adults. And that child can be very proud of his work, but come back a few years later when he's learned to draw a bit better. Come back when he's an adult and looks at that and he laughs because he realises what a, what a poor effort it was uh, compared to those who can draw well. And, and so it is, if we could see the works that we will be doing in glory and compare that with what we are doing now, we would see what a great disproportion it is, as the Westminster says, between the two. 
A second uh, group of arguments comes from the fact that our failures, our failures to do everything that we should, even by our bare duty, as well as our active sinning, creates a debt to God because we have failed to offer perfect obedience and the service that he deserves and in fact gone exactly the opposite way and actively disobeyed his word on so many occasions. And this debt in itself would mean that we deserve eternal death. It creates an infinite gulf between the holy God and the sinner who has that debt, which is eternal death. And it is only the infinite value of the Lord Jesus Christ's work that can bridge that gulf. And so again, there's no way that we can even do our duty properly and bridge that gulf in our own strength by doing that, let alone have anything left over to help bridge anybody else's gulf. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. And this means that we are at best unprofitable servants, as Luke 17 verse 10 says, those who even at their best are just doing their duty rather than going beyond their duty in order to turn a profit for their master. We are unprofitable. A third group of arguments, because even the smallest good that we do in thought or word or deed is moved by the Holy Spirit. Remember we saw that last week in the previous article, Article 3 in Chapter 16 of the Westminster. So any good we do is moved by the Holy Spirit, comes out of the new life that he's created in us, comes out of that gift of faith and his work of sanctification, comes out of the work of the Spirit in all of these ways, and not only that, any good we do is only good because it is sanctified and cleansed by the work and through the merits of Jesus Christ. And that leaves no bragging rights whatsoever for us. All the merit is his, all the praise is his. There's nothing there for us. In fact, from our side, the only thing we contribute when uh, word and spirit move us to do what God wants us to do, and when we act on that, what we do ourselves as we act on that prompting and that leading and guiding is still tainted by the sin that clings to us and mixed in with weakness and imperfection, as we are reminded here. And then a fourth argument, because of all of these things, if God would judge us simply by the standard of his law, and not in the merits of Jesus Christ, we would not be able to endure, and nor would any of our works. This critique of our good works answers not only medieval Romanism, it actually answers all works-based religions of the world, and that is all religions of the world, other than Christianity. In a theological college, we've had to study different religions, the religions of the world, and I've never come across a single exception. All are works-based in terms of earning whatever equivalent they have or claim of salvation. And Christianity, the, the biblical, the true religion, is unique in this teaching 
that it is not only salvation that is by grace alone and not on any other basis, but also the doing of good works that are acceptable to God are only on that basis of grace. No merit for man. Well, despite all these limitations that we've looked at so far, it is nevertheless possible for the believer to walk by the Spirit. And not just possible, it is something that happens in the life of every believer. Walking by the Spirit, our second and final point. And walking by the Spirit is not some mystical experience led by the Holy Spirit or some higher state that some Christians reach, only a few perhaps, where they become close to being perfect in their works and life. Now, this is given here as a command. It's given as a command to all Christians, to all the readers of this book of Galatians, to walk, that is to make this the habit of your life, To live in the way that the Holy Spirit not merely guides you, but in the way that he directs and leads you. The way that's laid down by God's word. For though it is true that we have an old nature, with the devil harassing us and hindering us and tempting us every inch of the way, we are also those who have been born again. Who have been given that new principle of spiritual life within by the work of the Holy Spirit. And given the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit. And who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us as in a temple. A spirit who sanctifies us. Who leads and guides and teaches us progressively to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Holy Spirit so works in us, scripture says that the Lord Jesus Christ also dwells in our hearts through faith. I'd like to read Ephesians 3 to you in this connection. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19. Where the same apostle writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And then he goes on to say that uh, God is able to do uh, even more than we, abundantly beyond what we expect in terms of these and other things. And I read this to make this point that, congregation, it is not like you have no help in the doing of good works. And in the progress of your sanctification. It is not like you have no help. That you are left alone with your limitations. And left alone with your debilitating weakness. As a result of all this help the apostle says. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. 
Just as he noted before that we don't do the things we please because of our old nature, here he also says in verse 16 that you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And he doesn't mean by this to say that you will never again, once you become a a spirit-filled Christian, that you will never again carry out the desire of the flesh. What he means is this, that whenever you seek and find the help of the Holy Spirit and act on that guidance and that leading of his, you will be helped to resist the devil. You will be helped to resist the desires of the flesh and you will be enabled to obey God albeit with all of those weaknesses that still cling to us. And this, you see, is said to leave us with absolutely uh, no excuse whatever with the uh, carrying out, when it comes to carrying out the desire of the flesh, we have no excuse for doing that. A Christian should never give in to sin on the ground that uh, he might say, well, the devil made me do it and I had no choice because... Who am I to resist the devil? And a Christian should never say, I gave into this temptation because it was too great for me and I simply couldn't help it. He should never say, I am too weak to resist this sin. Well, in a sense, he can say that because we are too weak in ourselves, but the Holy Spirit is not weak. In fact, he is sovereign and he will give strength for obedience if we want it. Well, no excuses. No reason for some fatalistic capitulation to Satan and to sin. However, as verse 18 reminds us, if we are under law, and again, that's an expression that has different nuances throughout the New Testament. If we are under law, verse 18, then we might have reason We might as well give up before we even begin trying to resist sin if we are under law in the sense that it's meant here. Under law in this case means trying to obey the law of God in your own strength, trying to save yourself by your own obedience and through your own merit without reliance solely upon the grace of God in Christ and the leading of the Holy Spirit. For it is impossible to do good, acceptable work, to work rightly in that under-law manner. But if, on the other hand, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling, granting us that spiritual life, then we will make a start in walking by the Spirit. Significantly, verses 19 to 21 provide uh, a long list of deeds that can be expected of those who walk according to the flesh. And uh, perhaps as we read that list, it is good for us to examine ourselves and see if any of that is present in our lives. Maybe not in the deeds very overtly. Maybe not uh, so much in the words that we speak, but thoughts perhaps. At least that, if not more. And then we come with this contrast in the following section, verses 22 and 23, the contrast that comes with the fruits of the Spirit. So you might say there is a contrast there between the fruits of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, and the fruits of the Spirit. And the contrast between the two leaders, flesh versus Spirit, and the two walks that result from following those leads 
the difference, the contrast between them couldn't be greater. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ and belong to him, you are indwelt by his spirit. That is a given. And if you are indwelt by his spirit, you are indwelt by the spirit who produces and grows these fruits. That is a given. Examine yourself and what do you see? Well, no doubt a mixture of what we read in verses 22 to 23, at least in our thoughts, if not more, and the deeds of the flesh in verses 19 to 21, a mixture of the fruits and the deeds, the fruits of the Spirit and the deeds of the flesh. But isn't it true that we want to see more of the fruits of the Spirit in our life and less of the deeds of the flesh? What is holding you back from growing more in the fruits and the expression of them, uh, given that fact that the Holy Spirit who produces these fruits, that he indwells us as God's people? Are we held back by inertia? Satisfied with our current state at the start of rest so that we need a push to get us moving, otherwise inertia keeps us where we are. Is it laziness? Is it pessimism? A lack of trust in the power of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the sovereignty of his spirit that we think, what's the point in walking in this direction because we're not going to be able to do it anyway? A man with an injured leg who convinces himself that uh, it's going to hurt too much and it's going to come to nothing may not take a step to test his healing. But one who really wants to walk is going to take that risk, so to speak, and he's going to use the helps that he's given, physiotherapy or even crutches or whatever else it is, and he's going to take that step. If you really want to walk and you really want to grow in that walking by the Spirit, use the help. Apply yourself to God's Word Pray in Christ's name for that help, in his merits. Ask God to give you the strength and the leadership of his spirit and take those steps leaning upon him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is not our desire to be held back would hold ourselves back in the doing of good to your glory. Will you help us to grow in sanctification so that we may increase in the doing of such works? Father, enable us to be humble enough to see how our old nature holds us back. And will you cause that to fill our lives all the more with gratitude that um, we can see that uh, we can rely upon your grace and accept the works of the Lord Jesus Christ and the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ as the basis of our salvation and the basis also of us being able to do acceptable works. And Father, will you also make us all the more assured of our salvation through him? But do not let us use our weakness as an excuse for a lack of effort on our part. Teach us to be led 
to cooperate with your Holy Spirit and to follow that lead that he gives us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We struggle with doubt and temptation, with the results that our works are never pure or perfect in our in our life and certainly never acceptable in their own right. But the Lord does care for us and he guides us through these struggles. Psalm to hymn 137, we will stand to sing and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology, 137.
After the blessing is our doxology, we sing number 309, stanzas 1 and 5. And uh, with this blessing, we are again reminded of how much help we have from the Lord. Triune help, uh, triune blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.